Shimmy, thanks very much for taking the time to do the interview with us. No problem. Um, you grew up in Terranor in the 1970s. Uh, tell us a bit about your upbringing. Well, I don't remember very much about it. Um, How come? I don't know. Um, I, maybe it's because I'm very much living in the present, or maybe because it was so long ago. Okay. But, um, I mean, it was happy enough. Childhood, um, was pretty much obsessed with film and music, even early on, so they would have informed a lot of, uh, the ha happiest memories, I guess. Um, there's four boys, I was the eldest of four, so they were basically it was like WWE every, <laughs> every day. <laughs> Constantly uh, fighting then, yeah? Oh yeah, we killed each other, That's of course. Great. So every every week would be someone else's turn to go up to casualty to <laughs> get something fixed. Or and were, they, uh, were they all like the same size? Were you all, was it one bigger than Pretty the other? Pretty much, yeah. Except the youngest, when he came along, he ended up being taller than all of us. And so uh, and had his revenge. Uh, your father, Louis, is, uh, is it Louis or Louis? Louis. Louis. Is uh, an Academy Award-nominated filmmaker. Um, big influence on your career? I think he's a big influence on my career because he's my father yes um, growing up I didn't really get what he did you know I knew he made films and um, but my idea of films back then was Hollywood was you know things you'd see in the the big blockbusters in the cinema um, he was making documentaries which were being seen in the cinema though in, in those days but um, I didn't equate it with um, what he was doing with kind of Hollywood mm -hmm. and stars and that so uh even when he'd go off to the Oscars, we were more concerned about getting a decent present when he came back. You know, we didn't, it didn't really land until much later on exactly what he was doing and, and how interesting it was. So the influence I got from him would have been um, not so much on a technical level, but on things like uh, work ethic, um, and, you know, leaving no stone unturned when you're researching a subject or something like that. Um, both my parents were very creative. Um, and um, and just kind of losing yourself in the work, total absolute enthusiasm for it, so it becomes everything, and that would have been kind of the predominant influence, I guess. Was there a certain age where you decided, yeah, you know, filmmaking was... I think when I was six or something, five, I saw Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. I know I tell the story all the time, and I didn't know what it was, what was happening on that screen, but I knew I had to have something to do with what they were doing. Oh, well. Um, uh, and it wasn't until years later it began to uh, I began to get an idea of what it, I mean originally it was acting was the main ambition and goal I didn't really get what directors were doing everything I seen was being filtered through the performances that's where I saw the magic so that's what I wanted to be involved in so it was only later then I started actually making films um, and it developed through there Cool we'll come back to that later The um your most recent short, Hannah Cohen's Holy Communion, deals with uh, a young Jewish girl looking to make her uh, her Holy Communion. How big an influence does religion have in your career and in your life, considering your Jewish heritage? Um, How did you find it growing up? Uh, pretty much um, not... <coughs> for me, it wasn't a hugely enjoyable experience because what I got from it was a sense of... Um, being different and not in a positive way because <clears throat> I think when you're a teenager what the thing that you want most is to fit in to be part of the gang and everything and uh, being growing up Jewish I was very much aware in particularly in such a predominantly Catholic country where priests still wore collars and stuff that you weren't like everyone else you know you were different in that you even in growing up in later years were very traditional Jewish family so going out on a Friday night was out of the question things like that so you'd watch your, your your friends going out in the tear and the rip and and you couldn't you know you were kind Enjoying. of looking at your nose pressed against the window um, so for me and also at the time I was very much conscious that you know 100 miles up the road Protestants and Catholics were slaughtering each other over religion so I didn't understand um, the benefit of religion and uh, and I still don't see the benefit of, of it for me I think for older people maybe they've in their their faith it gives them great solace but uh, so I had very strong views quite early on that I wasn't a fan of religion and um, and so it really didn't when as I was growing up I didn't really have any interest in telling religious stories per se or or stories about my own religion um, so it was just a kind of a weird coincidence that Hannah Cohen came about mm -hmm. 
Did you feel excluded? Uh, well, I was excluded. You were excluded. Yeah. Um, now there was a at the time there was a relatively healthy uh, Jewish community in Dublin. There would have been maybe up to five thousand people. I think it's down to fifteen hundred now. Um, but the grass was always greener, as far as I was concerned. I didn't, you know, it's like when you're told you can't hang out with these people, but you can hang out it's here. It's the one thing you want to do is hang out with them. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So, um, and uh, most of my friends were non-Jewish around that time as well. And so it was uh, it was difficult as a young teenager. You know, there would have been certain, um, certain aspects of my social life that would have to remain private that I couldn't share with the family or, you know, yeah, in terms of, of bringing girls home and that kind of thing. So you do, you do feel different. And what I think it gave me, if it, if it had an influence on my work in any way was it maybe gave me a sense of the outsider, uh, the underdog, which I think looking back seems to be a, a regular theme in a lot of the work I've done. So maybe that's where that comes from. I know we'd have to ask the shrink afterwards. <laughs> Um, having studied uh, advertising in Rap Minds to becoming an award-winning film director and sound engineer and editor, um, you've certainly gone the path less travelled. How did you get to where you are today? Jesus, yeah. How vague a question, eh? How long have you got? <laughs> I basically have a very short attention span, short con- levels of concentration, depending on what I'm doing. But so I, as soon as I, I get an idea for something I want to do I'll do it and then when I feel I've mastered or I've, or I've reached the limit of my capability with that I'm bored and I want to move on um, so with the acting thing I just I never really had the balls to fully pursue it and uh, was very self-conscious about that and was afraid I'd be laughed out of home so uh, business seemed to be the thing that I was I was very good at numbers and maths and uh, and coming up with these mad scams and ideas for business, that seemed the natural route to go. But when I got into study business studies, I, I hated it. I detested it. And then I had a friend doing advertising that seemed more creative. So I went to that, and then that was uh, equally frustrating because um, um, it was kind of run by dinosaurs, the industry, and new ideas really were not what they wanted to, to hear. Um, and I did... So I tried I went travelling for years and they came back and got into music so I was always into music and I did sound engineering lighting designing but around that time I was starting to make my own home movies so I'd bought a camcorder and at any time me and the mates would go away I'd be the guy with the camcorder and I'd shoot everything and then I would go home and edit it on to a VHS player you know the old record pause and then find, line up the next bit or whatever and which was interesting because that was my film school. That taught me about shot selection, framing, editing, all that kind of stuff. It's probably only, what, 20 years ago? Uh, what do we know? And the rest? Yeah, no, maybe 30 years 30, ago. Uh, 30 years ago, yeah. Yeah, 30... Uh, sometime around that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a while ago. And, um, and then... So where are we then? So there I'm... Okay, so I'm all, I'm on the road a lot doing... Working with a lot of bands because I wanted to be in a band but I was never quite good enough. So I did the next best thing which was I became a lighting designer which meant I could... I used to play the lighting desks like a keyboard. So it was the next best thing to being in a band and, uh, and and getting the lifestyle as well. Though never the girls. Obviously the singer always got the girls. Um, and then just started making music videos for these some of the bands as well again very crude a lot of them were just edited on VHS machines but um, so and then I actually decided to just f- said fuck it I'll go for the acting thing and I, I had a friend take a bunch of photographs of me in different poses and different costumes pretending they were stills from films and s- sent them around and I just started getting auditions loads of auditions then and then it was while I was doing a couple of shorts I started telling the director what to do with the camera because it wasn't I realised they weren't getting the the coverage they needed or whatever they yeah, weren't yeah. doing enough to make me look great and that's when I kind of realised maybe the directing is more interesting that's great and then here we are um, you originally drafted your first copy of Head Rush in 1994 mm-hmm. and um, it made it to screens until 2003 so that's a nine, nine year gap um, did you counter difficulties getting it from what do you think nine years yeah well yeah, well, when I wrote it, um, it wasn't like I was in the industry and I was 
working writing a lot kind of thing I had I didn't even know really much about the film industry at all I wasn't involved in it I wrote the screenplay just to kill the boredom one Christmas because there was just usual rubbish on the telly so um, and I'd been buying these Faber and Faber screenplays for a lot of my favourite films and uh, through my typical arrogance I was like sure I'll have a go how hard can it be why not (laughs) so yeah so I wrote this thing longhand one Christmas and then sent it and it sat in the drawer for a while and then I I decided to show it to my dad just to see because I figured he might know whether this was any good or not and and he said it's definitely worth sending out and he gave me the names of three producers and one of them came back and offered me an option which I thought was brilliant and um, which I jumped at but I remember I was all over it and I was like totally and then went home and said to my dad what's an option and uh, he said God what have you signed um, so that was that was the what's normally the hard bit was the easy bit the hard bit for me was then trying to understand what I'd done and how I could make it better and and started developing that way and then it went through other producers and um, and yeah the road to financing is a very different road to Wrote to write and cost nothing to write a script, you know. But we were trying to do the film properly. We wanted to try and raise a million, which was difficult because I'd almost hadn't made anything before. Mm-hmm. And um, and it just took a long, long time, yeah, before we finally got it over the line to make it. And think of the funding then took just took ages. Funding must, yeah, have, must have been funding took about five years, I think. Well, four or five years, something like that. I think we were close a few times and it collapsed, which is happens a lot, you know. Would you describe yourself as being um, very selective in what you choose to work on? I am now. You are now? Yeah. Great. There was a time when I wasn't as selective where uh, you're often faced with that decision, I think, if you are if you want to stay in the industry, where sometimes you, you get offered work that a little voice in the back of the brain goes, this isn't going to be great, but you've got to pay bills and, you know, and sometimes you do it and you think to yourself, I'll find a way to fix it or to make it work, and sometimes it doesn't happen. And you just got to accept you did the best job you possibly could and move on. Um, but now I'm at the stage where I'd rather starve. <laughs> Seriously. Really? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, we're never going to starve. Worst case scenario is I'd have to move back in with my parents or something, <laughs> you know. Which <laughs> is quite the trend these days. But, yeah. There's, I think there's an, there's enough shit out there and I don't want to contribute any more to it. Yeah. Um, you vary your filmmaking approach by shooting like feature films, documentaries, shorts, music videos, as you said, but you don't give any like specific preference to one category. Um, is there any particular reason? You just like to be interested in a bit of everything. No, I just love it all because I never went the traditional route of film school and then your director and then... I think what a lot of people seems what happens is they they make cur- commercials for a long time and then they move into features, or they start the opposite way where they just start off on low budget features and then they they hope to start doing some commercials to make a living. I mean, the grass is greener for both it seems. But I've always just loved the medium of of film and I love telling stories in different ways as well and the more inventive way of telling the story for me that. It's not about being inventive, it's about the best way to tell this particular story. So some of them suit better in drama, some documentary, some music, and uh, so it varies from project to project, but I've never wanted to to say I'm only a, a you know, features director or a documentary director because I enjoy all the different formats and all the disciplines, mm-hmm. and they all completely feed into each other. I find them all fascinating and exciting, like whether it's I could be doing a kind of a I don't know, a six-camera multi-cam live concert to me is as much adrenaline rush as working one-on-one with an actor in a scene and finding something very special in that moment or live. Particularly with multi-cam directing, you're trying to... You're chasing where the energy is around the stage the whole time, you know, Mm -hmm. as well as having a plan in your head because you've you've listened to the song a million times beforehand. You know who's doing what as such, you know. But but as long as I can do them all, it's it's great. I really enjoy it. Totally, yeah. Um, in 2009-2010 you made Soul Boy a film about the northern soul scene in the 1970s Britain uh, 
Where did the idea come from? Uh, one of the producers on Headrush, Christine Alderson, based in the UK, is a company of Factor Films, and she'd been developing the script for a while, and she knew how much I was into music, and, and so she gave me a draft of the script and said, have read of this, I think you'll like it. And I did. And that's it? Yeah, well, that's just... That's off. That's all it takes. Sometimes, really, it's oh, like yeah, do you yeah, like no, the script, don't you? Well, that's and true. Yes, yeah. it's, it's a very, very, um, I suppose, specific type of film, especially oh, for yeah, for, well, for an Irish filmmaker as well to to do a film about Northern Soul Dance in Britain. I thought I like the fact that, and I knew I was going to get grief over this. Like, what does a Paddy know about <laughs> the Northern Soul scene in Northern England? You know what I mean? And I thought uh, that made me even better placed to do it because it needed someone from the outside. I thought to come in. Um, who wasn't so precious about it, the scene as such? Look at it with fresh eyes, I suppose. Totally, yeah. Um, and I remember, like I'm old enough to remember, growing up in the seventies and being that guy on the edge of the dance floor, looking in and seeing. There'd always be two or three guys who were amazing dancers who you hated, you know, <laughs> and the girls would swing towards. And there was there was a lot of that. S- that kind of hot, sweaty atmosphere I remember vividly was very much part of the Northern Soul scene, except it was a lot more energetic and they were all amazing dancers. Yeah. But the music I loved as well and it was a great story to it. And um, so it was It was really it was a story that I wanted to tell. Then from a business point of view, it seemed to make sense to dip my toe in the English market and, and get to work with some great uh, talent over there as well, you know. So it ticked all the boxes. Oh, great. Um, in 2012, you directed the short film Rhinos, um, which has an extremely clever, but I suppose simple plot. Um, where did the idea come from, from that? Well, the irony of that was that I was trying to get away from plot and that a lot of the films and scripts I've been writing had great ideas, very kind of uh, convoluted plots and twists. And, and I wanted to do something that was really just coming purely from character that was character based um, so it was a combination of three things, it was that idea that I want something character based uh, it was the kind of a new approach to working with actors that I had been developing in the factory mm-hmm. uh, working in the, the actor studio there and then the the real kind of catalyst for it was meeting the German actress um, Eileen Tezel who I met at a festival in Germany when we were showing Soul Boy She's fantastic. Huh? Yeah, she's a quality Excellent. actor. And um, we got on like a house on fire. And she joked when I was leaving Germany that, you know, I'd have to write something for her now, you know. And uh, But she didn't give up. She didn't let go. <laughs> and uh, and she was serious. And then it, to the point where she was like, I have, I have a couple of days free in September. I can come over and we can shoot. So then I was like, okay, I have to write something. So rather than sitting there wondering what... A, what trying to create or invent a character-based story? I already had the idea that I had a German, German girl in Dublin. What could I do with this? So it came from there. The idea of what if she couldn't speak the language, and and I'm interested in you know communication mm-hmm. between people, and I thought there was huge potential for something like that, and it just evolved out of that. And literally, I think two drafts at most. It really reminds me of the film um, uh, Ghost Dog. You seen that the way of the samurai? There's a scene. I saw that here years ago. Yeah, it really reminds me of that when Forrest Whitaker's best friend speaks French, but they end up having the same conversation with each other, even though they don't speak the same language. But it's it it it, yeah, it it kind of reminds me of that one vaguely. It's very interesting though. We'll check it out again. Do do Jim Jarmusch is great. Yeah. Um, Throughout your career, you've traversed many different projects. Uh, What or whom would you say is your main inspiration? I have no idea. I mean, when I when I was really getting into cinema, um, I suppose it was would have been around the early eighties, maybe late seventies, early eighties. There is I would sneak down late at night forever and go to bed. I'd sneak down and, and switch on BBC Two. I think Channel Four was starting up there, and that's where I I managed to catch up on all the amazing cinema that was coming out of America in the late sixties, early seventies. So all the stuff, uh, you know, Scorsese and Brian De Palma and all these guys were doing was just that's that was the real kind of mo- that's where you go from 
Willy Wonka and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang to Mean Streets, you know. Yeah. Um, and so that was the kind of stuff that was influencing me a lot, I guess, at that that stage. Um, but I've never had any epic heroes like, you know, Gandhi or s someone like that. For me, my heroes are always usually kind of local, small local type people. Um, you know, someone that you that would inspire you even on a like uh, even on a kind of a topical sense like Panty at the moment oh yes um, something like that I go fair fucking play you know and it makes me question what am I really fighting for what what am I trying to say do I have anything to say you know things like that uh, the whistleblowers the people like that who are just constantly you know you feel the weight of the political bullshit they're under and you're kind of like well you know how tough is it for me really they those those kind of small heroes kind of I've, I'm very impressed by, um, but I think they're, you know, that cliche we're holding out for a hero. There's very few heroes around today. There are, I suppose it is. It's it is inspiring when you see real people doing real things that matter. Yeah, yeah. Which is why I think I like the balance of documentary stuff as well, compared to just fiction and drama. You know that there's there's um, it kind of grounds you a little bit. I think sometimes. Um. In general, what are your thoughts on the film industry in Ireland? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's is there anything it's you like, anything you dislike, anything that could be I changed? There's lots that could be changed. Um, you know, there's a lot of very honest people working very hard, and um, there's a lot of people who are doing what they they think is right for the industry and. Uh, we all have different ideas on what makes how it should evolve as such you know I think we, we definitely punch well above our weight and uh, and we have an extraordinary um, brand um, on the international stage from pretty more so it was more so in our actors and, and certainly to our directors to a certain extent that we have some very very good crews here you know mm -hmm. um, and there's usually an Oscar nomination for a short film each year or something, either in drama or, or animation. I think that's an extraordinary record. But I would love to see a lot more money go into um, smaller films, more micro-budget films. They, I don't understand why we have to give some films nine. When I say we, I mean the Irish Film Board, obviously. Yeah, yeah. You know, you can't do an interview without having a good bitch about the Irish Film Board. <laughs> Um, even though they've supported me uh, at times over my career, um, why they would give you know a film a million, you know, for me as like you can make ten micro budget films for that, and I think the other problem we have is that there seems to be, and this is maybe a universal thing to a certain extent, but you only have there only seems to be one way of developing a feature film, which is the script is king, and everything goes into the script and. It's all about the script and getting the script polished and the three-act structure, yada, 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 yada. And then they go and shoot it and it doesn't always work because that's the way it is. You know, mm -hmm. when you you make, a, you know, when you create music, you demo it. When you create a painting, you sketch it. You do all these different things. With film, it seems like you go out and you spend a ton of money on a five-week shoot and that's it. You might have enough for another day or two. So I don't understand why they don't look at other methods of development. And instead of spending vast amount of money um, that they should really spend more money on the development part of developing for example as we do in the factories developing with actors where the actors are very much involved in the de evolution of the script and the development of the script so by the time you've by the time you've got to shoot your film you've pretty much rehearsed the whole film and you know what works and what doesn't to a certain extent which I think even economically makes a lot more sense because the amount of times you'll go out and you'll spend spend a million on a shoot and then discover you're not even using 25% of what you've shot, you know um, and then you have to spend a load more money going out to shoot new scenes that to try and fix what's, what isn't working in the edit so I'd like to see a lot more money go into uh, micro budget and development to that sense but, um, but I think every, you know I think we're blessed the fact that we have state support, so many countries don't have that I think sometimes I wonder maybe we should just get rid of the whole thing and then see what it's like and that'll really filter out who really needs to make a film because if they want it then they'll, they'll just do it I think all the equipment is there you know 
there's you, um, when you actually take stuff away from people generally create creativity will will thrive pro- will prosper more it because has done oh, yeah. artists always flusher in bad times and good times and uh, um and it'll just get done like uh, there's a guy I won't, I won't mention any names but there's someone shooting a feature film in the factory at the moment they're shooting 15 16 pages a day um actors are playing three or four characters and they're basically demoing the feature in 10 days it's cost them all nothing and they'll cut it themselves on their laptop and in two months time they'll have a rough cut of their feature and they'll know exactly what is working what's not what's worth going out really spending money on on a crew and what's not and I don't know why we don't do that all the time it makes a lot, a lot more often it's just, a lot of sense. just for the film and economically as well yeah, yeah. it's huge um, at a quick glance through your filmography it is, uh, it is noticeable that your work isn't predominantly aimed at a mainstream audience um, how, how would you define mainstream? Uh, for me, anyway, it would be uh, that I could. It's ex- very easily accessible, and I could find it anywhere. I go see it anywhere in a number of different cinemas if I wanted to. Um, so and not and not and not. Well, no, not even to be seen in the cinema, but not aimed at a. Uh, not aimed for the general public. It's aimed for a specific group. Hmm. Going back on um, what you were saying earlier on, when you say you know uh, you were selective or you're not sele- you weren't selective previously, but you are selective now. Yeah. Um, so the stuff that you pick, would you be happy to hit it to a mainstream audience, or would you be more? I'd like this to have an impact on certain people. Well, I still or? don't understand the definition. I mean, a lot of my work is available out there if if people oh, yeah. choose to see it. I can't. My work cannot compete with the Hollywood distribution model, so I can't posters on buses and stuff like that you know I can't compete with the stuff so it's I can't market it in that sense mm-hmm. though ask me about that in a minute because there's an interesting point about that as well I'll come back to um, but at the same time when you, you when you create something you're not saying I'm only making it for this demographic <coughs> you know when you make something the idea is that you hope everyone will see it but obviously it's not realistic but you know you'll find an audience yeah. per se you know it's uh um, so I'm at the mercy of whatever distribution models are out there per se if I make a short film you know there's um, like for example the example of um, of Rhinos that's that's on telly next week and uh, it'll probably get seen by more people in that TV slot than a lot of features will get seen today you know in the cinemas mm-hmm. so um, and it's really so it's a great film it's, it works it seems mm-hmm. to work with um with whatever audience I don't know who I made it for actually the truth of Rhinos is that I made it for myself that I actually didn't care who saw it or I didn't pander to any audience we, we you know we we self-financed ourselves uh, I used th- I think there was three crew at most we we sh- we just went back to the old school of filmmaking just grab a camera grab a grab a mic okay now we happen to have a really good camera and a good mic and um but we, it was just something I, I totally made for myself. I didn't give a fuck about anybody else, and it just resonated with everyone. I think what happens is sometimes we pander to our audience too much sometimes. So that was a film that I thought no one would see, and it's, it'll, it'll end up... I mean, we've sold that film all over the world. Um, it's still traveling festivals. It'll be on... It's It's been on TV in other countries, so it'll probably get seen by more people than a mainstream feature film in this country, so it depends on what your definitions are, you know? Okay. Um, and this through online platforms I mean you can watch any feature I've made online you download it illegally if you want you'll watch it you know there's a lot of work we'll be on cutting the that website bit so. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, um, the re- it's that's the reality oh know? it is yeah no? it is uh, I think uh, every uh, every man and dog in the street at this stage is downloading something illegally yeah I mean it's the things will find an audience and you could already like last what 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 month is this? Where are we now? February. It's February. Mm-hmm. Okay, so last March, um I put out a documentary feature that I made. Um a music documentary that you could say, well, it's you know, it's music, it's artsy, it's not really mainstream at all. We had one night released in the Sugar Club and four nights in the factory and we had 
no P&A support from the film board from anyone else and we did more business than two or three major Irish feature drama films that had a mainstream cinema release with a huge P&A support and we did better numbers than them so the perception of what's mainstream is quite often very um, different to the reality of actually who sees it and, and what people go and, and see stuff you know mm-hmm. um, you have been described as being quite uh cool and calm whilst directing oh anchor. Yeah, talking yeah. about don't let that um, reputation get out given the uh, given the pressures that a director encounters every day whilst on set how do you manage to remain so focused I go home and kick the shit out of the dog <laughs> <laughs> no I don't have a dog I love animals you have a cat you don't the re- I mean it's weird because it's like what I find is like screaming and shouting actually well, you got to pick your moments for it. But at the end of the day, I don't think it really achieves a huge amount. Um, there's got to be a right time for it, obviously. But um, but my experience is you get so much more out of people by taking to them aside and, and talking to them quite calmly, as, as we're doing now, um, as opposed to humiliating them in front of a crew. or or. And I've seen directors completely, you know, psycho what I call psycho fuck actors and play with the mind just to get certain performances out of them and things like that you hear all sorts of stories but um, I prefer to be honest and and collaborate with them as opposed to just you know to play with them in that sense Um, so I've I've generally find that um, losing your mind and getting angry and screaming doesn't really help the creative process and it doesn't put me in a good frame of mind to open my own mind to solving problems creatively and uh it's oh, it's generally nicer if it's a better atmosphere I find you know I think so yeah um, I think going back on what you say uh, psycho fuck was it is uh, mm. is that not very um, depending on how good the character that they're working with is I mean to push into the well that's um, it depends on the character and the actor but I, I wouldn't what I say I psycho fuck with them is I mean I wouldn't play games with them mm-hmm. you know I wouldn't um, I wouldn't manipulate in, in the sense like you know you heard stories of what movie was it uh, Lenny to Dustin Hoffman there's a there's um, uh, Dustin Hoffman plays the, uh, is in a film called Lenny okay. the story of Lenny Bruce and there's a scene where his old girlfriend is on the phone sobbing to him and the story goes, I don't know if it's true, but the story goes that the director found out that the actress's father had died and had managed to had decided to keep the information away from her until they went to do that scene. So that, for me, is kind of where you psycho-fuck someone, where you manipulate. Um, like I say, I don't know if that's true, that's alleged. Um, but that kind of idea uh, that you totally manipulate your actors in some ways. Now, I think you can do that to a certain extent um, without... Um, where it's okay to keep an actor in the dark for a specific reason in relation to what's happening. Maybe you don't want them to know what's happening in the story and you want to get a more natural reaction out of them. One doesn't get too personal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, you do want it to be personal. It's all personal. It's completely personal acting. It's True. All I think if, uh, if, somebody, if somebody was keeping information from me that my dad had passed away, I think I'd lose the plot. Yeah, well, obviously, so. that's a little extreme. <laughs> yeah. But it depends. You have to gauge on the actor and what they want. Some actors love that kind of... Um, approach you know to be involved um, where they want anything at all to help them with their you know develop the character and find that and some actors are like I just want the lines in advance and trust me to do the job so that's the challenge you have sometimes where you can have two two very different style of actors in the same scene or something you know in the same film mm-hmm. um, as you've already said you have a keen interest in music hmm. so tell us a bit about it what kind of music into all music is there any particular forms that uh, you like more than others I've never really gotten into country and I don't understand why so you're not going to Garth Brooks then I actually do want to go to Garth Brooks really well I'm, I want to see what I want to see what the fuss is about I think everybody does but I think he I think I think he he probably has an amazing show the show itself is probably extraordinary I think any any event where you're going to have 80,000 people having this kind of religious experience to me is interesting you know regardless of what the music is I don't think I could do it for too long at a death metal concert but but even that is visually quite interesting um, I mean I know it'll be interesting because also most of it is going to be 
you know, Americans. For like seventy percent of the ticket sales for Garth Brooks came from abroad, so yeah. it's not going to be f- full of you know Irish country people. Um, but no, I listen to anything. Really, who's your favorite band? If you had to pick one, oh god, I can't. I can't pick one. You know, there's always like I can never pick a favorite film. There'd always be five or something that mm-hmm. resonates. So, but um. I mean, Beatles and the Stones. You listen to anything new at the moment? Um, yeah, well, it's weird. You kind of you get into these bands. Like I was listening to Little Green Chorus for quite a while, and then suddenly they they became mainstream, <laughs> and they weren't as interesting anymore. Uh, it's kind of like you know you you get the demos and you love fall in love with the demos, and then they go into the studio and record it properly. And, and sometimes you kind of miss the roughness and the rawness to the to the edge of it quite a bit um, and there was someone else um, I discovered recently was it The Notice I can't remember there's so many great bands coming through now it's, I can't keep track anymore really there to is, be honest yeah. with you I find my I'm, I'm going back in time listening to stuff rather than going forward you know yeah I think a lot of people are doing that I think uh, yeah some people just can't uh, can't get to grips with new music so they go back and they start listening to the old music circle of electronica I mean I remember well, electronic first came out. Well, in my period, I'm sure it was out before then. Even more, they were playing with computers back in the 50s and 60s. But um, but it's all. I don't hear anything new. It's very hard to hear something new when you get to my age. It all sounds very re- very recycled. So for me, the last really holy shit rock moment was Nirvana. You know, I haven't heard anything since then that for me kind of read. Of, well, I suppose Radiohead to a certain extent. But yeah, it's been a while since I've heard anything that's that made me lose my mind yeah that was a good one actually and that's 93 even before then yeah yeah before then first yeah. album was before that yeah um, are you currently working on any, anything at the moment that we can look forward to uh, I'm just finishing now a a documentary on Irish composer Ian Wilson and poet Leontra Flynn who did a residency in Tala Hospital observing Parkinson's patients for a couple of weeks and from that came to, went away and wrote um, a musical score and some poetry that they performed then in the hospital a year later as part of the arts health program at Tala Hospital so it was kind of it was for me it was an interesting idea about learning more about Parkinson's and discovering that but it's actually really about the creative processes of how you turn that experience into music and into poetry mm-hmm. um, so I'm just finishing that off at the moment and uh, a couple of scripts trying to, trying to nail down before the, uh, seeing the, the documentary um, tell us a bit about the factory and the actor studio um, what's it about well, the factory was, was set up by John Carney Kirsten Sheridan Lance Daly and the idea was which is something I kind of get because I, I've, I've known them all for, for a long time and I remember John back in the frame when he was in the frames days and we used to hang out and that's there was a real sense of community and I always remember thinking it's a shame that the film community didn't have something like that that so many writers and directors work in a vacuum and and there's no real huge collaboration in that sense or place so they set up the factory as a place where filmmakers could go and hang out and share ideas and and the other idea was to start um, training actors because what we found is that in over the years, so many of the auditions that we do when we're casting films is that everyone coming in would have an awful lot of theatre training, which is very different to what we need for, for film. Okay. And and then there was a new generation coming through that were all kind of very shouty and um, basically over the top so the idea was that we could train in actors ourselves and we would have this amazing commune or clique of just great actors that we could use to make lots of low-budget films. So we basically fulfilled the first half of that in creating the the actor studio and the program and, and we have some um, ex- amazing talent uh, in there but we never completed the second half which was the making film parts. That they're all still... They're, I mean, we've done some films. Kirsten did... Um, 
did Dollhouse, some of that came out through there, and Lance did some stuff there as well um, on Life's a Breeze, and uh, John did the Rafters, but uh, but they've all been doing their mainstream mainstream stuff as well, <laughs> the big stuff, big budget <laughs> stuff as well. So we haven't done a, a kind of a low budget feature yet. We're working on one at the moment. It's on the cards. It's on the cards, yeah. But it's a great it's a great environment in which you can. For example, I could be working on a scene that's not working. I can open the door, grab three actors, workshop it for an hour, and now I know why the scene's not working. Um, so there's a great sense of community in there, and um, we get a lot of we do a lot of workshops and a lot of we get a lot of guests, and we had Richard Dreyfus in last week. Um, and it's really it's it's totally all about the work and the art. It's just there's zero bullshit. We don't. You know, we're not interested. No one in there is interested in in being famous. They're just interested in doing quality work. And the less interested we are in that side of things, the better they're. You know, it's their the success success seems to be like every time I switch on the telly, I see a bunch of our guys. You have this weird, very kind of great pride you take in seeing how their their careers are evolving. I guess the the biggest example of that is Jack Rayner, who's. Is really flying now, you know. Yeah, he's really, really undertaking like the storm. Yeah, overnight. Um, it seems like only yesterday I was wiping his napping. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only saying that just to piss him off. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, the story, yeah. the story he has for uh, for going over to America is great. Apparently, went over to New York with thirty dollars in his pocket. Yeah, I know it's a bit. Uh, yeah, that's a great story. It's quite yeah. outlandish, but uh, I suppose that Michael Bay likes to tell it. No, he is. He's absolutely. He, he, he was. He was broke. I remember, like dropping him off. It was I don't know if it was the week before he was going, and he got me to drop him off at the bus on bus stop. And just as point, if he knocks back on the the window, goes actually any chance I could borrow the bus fare from him? I was like, get get back in the fucking car for God's sake. So they were they're all they are broke, you know. Yeah. But they do, and some of them very bravely have made choices not to take the full time job that they would. Rather spend the days reading scripts, creating self, you know, self taping, practicing self taping, coming in, workshopping stuff, and that's that's the kind of balls and dedication you need, I think, to make it. Particularly because we live in a in a world where so many people are self taping now, they're not just competing um, against them. You know, the smaller pool here, you know, there's anyone can send self tapes into casting directors, so mm-hmm. and it means that they can also self audition themselves and send tapes to America. You know, so they're working on accents all the time as well, so they can compete over there without having to fly. Or stroll down to film base and audition for Star Wars, if you want. <laughs> um, actors on the program actually refer to the naturalistic approach you take to acting. Is there uh, any particular work you like to do with actors in relation to developing a character? Uh, <clears throat> the, I mean, a lot of the work that we do, it just takes time. It takes a lot of time and investment, and it's it's a dialogue, so it's an exploration. And I, what I love to do is, if you tell someone how to do something, they they don't get it as much as if they discover it themselves. So a lot of it is just trying to nudge them in certain directions until they make the discoveries themselves. So, um, so a lot of it is, is about discoveries. For example, like on the in the program, um, on the very first day of the program I take them all out um, into town we usually go to Jervis Street and their exercise for the next two to three hours is to follow people stalk them around town and just observe them the way that they actually behave when they're not being the way people behave when they're not feel like they're not being watched Um, the way they walk the way they carry themselves the way they behave in, in, in front of other people the way they behave when they think they're completely on their own and then they come back and we discuss it and then they create scenes based on the characters that they've observed in these situations. And that's always a really interesting exercise for them um, because they discover an awful lot about people. Um, how many people have nothing to do in with their time? They just literally wanting them, like following them for like 10, 15 minutes in rise. They're actually not going anywhere. They're just killing time or they're just wandering or and just very bizarre incidents that happen to them in the street. So it's it's about keeping your eyes open and your ears open as well and just seeing what's around. I think we just kind of go through life with our heads down and blinkered and such. So it's about kind of opening up their eyes to to the world around them and just taking ownership of the world 
which which we all did when we were kids anyway, until that was beaten out of us. So it's it's really getting them back into that kind of mental state is the, the really the starting point. And then they start finding an interesting, start looking for characters to develop themselves and and then just really trying to get a sense big time of getting in touch with themselves and finding out who they are themselves. It's, it sounds a bit, you know, psychobabbly, but it's that's the basis for what we, what we do, we think, is the it makes it more interesting. You know, you can't be somebody else. Well, you can't be somebody else anyway, but you can't you can't play a character if you don't understand who you are yourself, you know. That's a very, um, very interesting technique. You can only imagine it. It opens the actors to uh yeah, what they imagine are becoming more comfortable with themselves, and especially when they have you know cameras on them or you know sound equipment in front of them and stuff like that, that they don't, you know, it, it feels like it's not there at all. They're just who they are. Well, it's it's getting them to own the camera. I mean, they the camera is there, but instead of trying to block it out, which you can't do, um, it's accepting the camera is there and 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 no taking ownership over it, which is which is fine because. If you if you act as if the camera's there and, and you're thinking to yourself, okay, just don't get freaked out by the camera, don't notice, the camera sees that. So what the camera sees is someone trying to avoid looking at the camera. Whereas if you're totally conscious of and aware of the camera and it's not a big deal, if you take ownership over the camera, then it's 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 far more interesting. It's not a it's not a problem. And then it's with that comes the learning of the craft of how to manipulate the use of the camera. So understanding that if, if you can't see the camera, the camera scene can't see you. So if someone's moving in the scene, it's just that drifting forward just a little bit until you know you can be in the shot or, or finding out where the light is of an actor moves and suddenly the light is blocking your face. It's been able to move ever so subtly. So you know you're being lit. So, so it's a combination of all those kind of uh, craft work and and technique as such. You know? Is there anybody that you, um, you hope to collaborate with in the future? See, it's weird because I'd love to work with uh, P.T. Anderson, but I don't know how that would work because he's a director as well. Um, but I would just, yeah, even just workshopping stuff with him would be interesting. Um, I would have loved to work with Philip Seymour Hoffman. Sadly, that's that's not going to happen. Um, I don't know. I mean, I just as long as I'm working with people who I think are much better than me, I'm 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 happy because otherwise I'm not really going to learn as much. You know, I would always try and work with people who are much better than me. Um, and yeah, because you have to keep pushing your, raising your own bar as such. You know. Um, so, but I've never been a star worker, and you know, saying I have to work with someone like that. You know, mm-hmm. um, just talent. I just love to work with. You know, just just amazing talent. Or even just new talent, I find that really refreshing as well. Where, you know, we, we're we, some of the actors we work with in the studio, the program are quite young, and some of them actually don't have any idea how good they are, which is which is amazing to experience, you know. And when you can get talent that that raw or whatever, it's it's get to it before it's been destroyed by any other kind of bad teaching or yeah. bad acting teaching is is just fabulous. So you you're trying, you're just nurturing stuff the whole time and that for me is also is equally as rewarding so this is the uh, the dreaded question that we want to ask most people what is your favourite film and you said it no you generally say between like you know you can give us maybe five but if, yeah, if you had to pick one I, well I always say it started with Chitty Chitty Bang Bang so I'll just have to say Chitty Chitty Bang favorite. Bang yeah cool um when you look back over your career, is there anything that you would have done differently? Well, it's that yes and no answer, isn't it? It's yes because I made a balls of this or balls of that, or no because every mistake I've made has been part of the learning curve. You know, you know, this cliche wouldn't change anything. I certainly would change some things. Um, Was there any one thing in particular that sticks out in your mind that you go, God, if I, if I got another shot at that? No. Um, Sometimes I think maybe I sh- I'm, I should have started this game when I was younger instead of waiting until, I don't know, I think I was 32, 33 before I made my first short, um, that if I'd have started that 10 years earlier. 
But I think those 10 years that I spent doing a million other things were as valuable in terms of of life experience. Um, I think that's another key thing we tell our actors as well is like, you know, you have to go out and live because if you're just sheltered, you don't you won't get any experience of life or meeting with other people or mm -hmm. in contact and learning about the world out there. So I'm kind of glad I've did all, all that stuff as well. So no regrets now. Um, considering how difficult it is to make a living in the film industry, is there any advice that you give to budding Irish filmmakers? You just don't. Yeah, it's very easy to say don't worry about making a living, but but you have to do that. Really, if you're if you're doing it for the money, forget it. Find a different. Has to be about passion. Yeah, well, it's got to be about the art. I mean, the art has got to has got to be what feeds you. The feeds the soul. If if you're not getting from that, then try accountancy or or something else. I don't know. Not that there's anything wrong with accountancy. It's a noble profession. Um, but it's um, if you're just doing it to get rich. Yeah. I remember meeting this kid in film school, and he was like, "I can't decide whether to be a director or producer, but I'm leaning towards producing because they make more money." <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, you sound like a producer, all right." <laughs> But really, get out now, kid. Um, so, um, no, I mean, you like I, no, you just gotta do it for the, for the, for the love of the art, you know. And if your heart's not in it, then then stop. Yeah. To finish off the interview, um, we're gonna do this thing where I'm gonna say two options, and you pick one. First one that comes into your head. B. P. Rugby or soccer? Soccer. Hitchcock or Kubrick? Kubrick. Bob Marley or Bob Dylan? Marley. Guinness or Heineken? Guinness. Comedy or drama? Comedy. Tom Hanks or Tom Cruise? Hanks. Hurling or football? Hurling. Tea or coffee? Uh, tea. Sopranos or The Wire? I'd love to say True Detective. Um, oh, it's unbelievable. <laughs> uh, Sopranos. Film or music? Music. Wow. Shimmy Marcus, thank you very much for taking the time to do the interview with us. Marcus. Marcus. <laughs> thank you very much. Thanks. Cheers. Cheers.